This is Karen Hunter, and welcome to The Hub. It took three readings of Beloved for me to finally grab on to the genius of Toni Morrison. And as I reflect on her and her life and her work and her no longer being here, which is so foreign, you know, you spend your whole life. I was an English major at Drew University, and one of my first loves was The Bluest Eye. I dove into that book. It was one of the first books outside of Maya Angelou's I Know Why the Caged Bird Sings that I could completely connect with. And then I read Sula and Song of Solomon, and I just fell in love with Toni Morrison. But when I hit Beloved, I couldn't understand why everyone was raving about this book. And I thought that they were liars. Because, you know, people, like, they sit around and listen to music and tell you how dope the music is, and you sit there and you're like, nope, that's not good music at all. That's how I felt about Beloved. But what I realized after the third reading was that I was not ready for Toni Morrison's genius. At 32, I unlocked the code of Toni Morrison. Um, in my teens at, at Drew, in my 20s, when I graduated, I decided to pick it up again because, hell, she won a Pulitzer Prize. I must have to know something, you know, I must be missing something. Nope, had to put it down again, but I'm not to be defeated. I'm so stubborn, and I decided at 32 I was going to pick it up again. I don't know what precipitated me reading it again, but I remember there was a scene, uh, and it was way before the scene where the, the mother killed her child in the barn. It was way before that scene. It, I think it was around the, the time when the, the neighbors, when the neighbors told on her, and I said, wow, because I had understood that kind of betrayal, betrayal at the hands of people who smile in your face, people you fed, people that you've taken care of, people that you thought loved you, wished you the best, that were cheering you on, but who were actually jealous of you. I understood, I had to live some life, right? Um, I understood I understood the decision to, to take your child out of this life, to not live this horror because you understand what that horror is because I had done some research and some studies, but I also had tapped into my DNA and into my ancestors. And for 400 years, people, human beings, had to stuff their feelings, had to stuff their humanity, had to stuff their true self, their sexuality, their, the very naming of themselves. They had no control over any aspect of their lives but their souls. And they had to make decisions that may not have made any sense to the outside world, may have looked crazy to everyone else, but decisions for survival. And that survival allowed me to be here today. And so I had to get to a place of consciousness and a place of maturity to understand what Toni Morrison was really delivering with Beloved and even the title. And I'm not going to give too much away, but I remember that awakening in that day, and I was like, wow, I apologize. I apologize to the, to the ether. I apologize to the universe for even having the audacity to think differently, to think that this book was not one of the greatest works I've ever read, and it is to this day, beloved. It's complicated. It's deep, but in a depth is where you'll find yourself. But you cannot understand what Toni Morrison is saying until you understand who you are. She requires that. She requires that of her readers. From jazz with his heavy allegory, I mean, just beautiful, just a beautiful, beautiful writer, and I'm gonna miss her immensely. I cannot imagine that we're actually in a world where Toni Morrison 
is no longer here physically. But here's the beauty. There are a dozen books now, and there's some that I haven't read yet that I'm going to spend some time, and I'm going to go back and read Beloved a fourth time. I'm actually going to get it on Audible because I want to hear her voice read to me. But as we contemplate that, the greatness of Toni Morrison was not just in her writings, but was in her depth of personhood, that she had lived such a complete full life raised in Ohio, uh, just outside of Cleveland. And, and again, in Beloved, there's that Ohio River. The one side is freedom, the other side is slavery. And I imagine she traversed those, those same rivers in her own life as she matured, as she grew into personhood. But I, I kind of think of Toni Morrison as always being a grown-ass woman. I can't imagine her ever being a child. And when she talks about her upbringing and, and what her parents instilled in her, you kind of know that a sense of self was paramount. And as I look back on my own uh, upbringing, my own, you know, come to awakening, uh, I spent way too many years in clouded in darkness, clouded in, in selfishness, clouded in not knowing what my purpose was. And there's no, you know, fault because many of us are, are you know, traveling that road. But to not know and then to have judgment is probably the, the worst combination possible, <laughs> uh, to be ignorant and then have the audacity to judge. But uh, I say all this to say, uh, Toni Morrison has had a profound effect on me as a writer, uh, as a person, and I'm gonna share two clips that, um, one I've shared on the radio quite often where she talks about um, being, knowing that she was morally superior. And as she was struggling to not just say, I know I always knew I was superior, morally like she had to take a breath but the reality of what she is saying is that yeah I'm superior because I'm morally superior and because I understand humanity and because I understand the connected tissue between you and me because I know that we are all one because I know that we're all human beings I'm morally superior I'm superior to someone who does not believe that in an interview with Charlie Rose Toni Morrison takes us through that like and she says in this time that we're in right now, it's so poignant. And I only played a piece of the clip on the radio, but I'm gonna play the whole clip of this where she talks about at the end, without your racism, who are you? Are you any good? You know, and it's like, but that's a, a profound question for all of us. If you could remove racism, who are you? Are you any good? And I think that's what I wanna walk away with as we celebrate the life of Toni Morrison. But the first clip I'm gonna play, um, Toni Morrison is talking about writing. So if somebody had the audacity to ask Toni Morrison if she could write about anything other than black people. Is that all you, basically, is that all you can write about? And it's again, an interview with Char Charlie Rose and she says, what an insulting question to ask me if that's all I could write about. Tolstoy wrote about race. No one asked him, is that all you could write about? But there's something profound in asking a black woman whose experience is black, who is telling a black story to black people about blackness and about identity and about power. Is that all you can write? As if to write about white people somehow would make her a better writer. <laughs> and as I look at you know, the things that I do and as I, as I hear people in their different fields, whether you're a doctor and I've had many, many doctors come through and I've interviewed a host of them, but the nerve and the audacity that people have to challenge somebody because of their race to challenge whether or not they're competent. They're scientists. Are you competent because you're black? Are you sure you can do these things because you're a woman? Technologists, are you, can you really do this? 
So I want to challenge everyone listening, you know, to honor Toni Morrison. Yes, we all need to read every single last one of her words that she's ever written. But also, let's live in her spirit, which is unapologetic, knowing who she is, knowing that she was great, knowing that no matter what people said, that she had a purpose and a plan for what she wanted to do with her life, and she was not going to be deterred by anybody's impressions of her. That's how we have to live, boldly and free. That's what freedom looks like. So with these two clips, Toni Morrison, I, um, from Toni Morrison, I hope that you gleaned something. The first one is where she's questioned about whether or not she could write about anybody or anything other than black. And the next one is about who are you? And are we gonna challenge ourselves to be morally superior, to be superior? Toni Morrison died today August 5th, actually. She died August 5th, 2019. She was 88 years old, and she was one of the greatest writers I've ever read. She will be sorely missed. Stay tuned. Idea of writing about race, or the absence of race. Um, Phil Moyers, I think, once asked you the question, can you imagine writing a novel that's not centered mm -hmm. about race? And you said, absolutely. Yes. Will you? That's what he asked me. <laughs> <laughs> I think, uh, see, I answered the question he didn't pose. You know, um, Tolstoy writes about race. Yeah. All the time. Um, so does... Zola, so does James Joyce. Now, if anybody can go up to an imaginary James Joyce and say, you write about race all the time, it's central in your novels, when are you going to write about what? Because you see, the person who asks that question doesn't understand that he is also, he or she is also raced. So to ask me when am I going to stop, and or when if I can, is to ask a question that, in a, in a sense, is its own answer. Yes, I can write about white people. White people can write about black people. Anything can happen in art. There are no boundaries there. Having to do it or having to prove that I can do it is what was embarrassing or insulting. In this book, I did. It was insulting that people, help me understand, what was insulting? The, the idea that you felt like you had to prove that you could write he without... Yeah, the question was posed as though it were a desirable thing to do, right. to write about white people or to write not about race. That's what that means to right. me. Um, and that, that it was a difficult to do, a higher level of artistic endeavor, or it was more important. Uh, and that I was still writing about marginal people, and why don't I come into the mainstream? Aren't you importing too much into the question? Maybe. I think so. <laughs> <laughs> well, what could else could it be, Charlie? What, what does that mean? What does that question mean? You tell me if I'm making too much. I don't know. I mean, I don't know that you, you... I don't think it probably means... I didn't ask the question, so I don't think it probably means, but I don't think it had to do about... You were marginalizing by not writing about. It only works 
if I can go to William Styron, well, maybe not William Styron because he has done it, um, somebody, Major White, and say, as a journalist... Can you write about black people? That's right. Can I say that? What kind of question is that to put to Ed Doctorow, who has done it, by the way? Sure. <laughs> but, I mean, if I can say, when are you going to write about black people to a white writer, if that's a legitimate question to a white writer, then it is a legitimate question to me. I just don't think it is. You know, so you have, the glove has to be pulled inside out. If it's, it's, in other words, it's not a literary question. It has nothing to do with the literary imagination. It's a sociological question that should not be put t to me. It should, I couldn't ask that of any writer who was, you know, I wouldn't ask it of a black writer when you're going to write about white people. Now, maybe I'm wrong. You can tell me now or later if I've blown it up all out of proportion. I don't think so. I just don't know what the question means except what I think it means. You think it may just be a little question, a little curious, you know, small incidental question. Maybe I'm responding because I have had reviews in the past that have accused me of not writing about white people. I remember a review of Sula in which the reviewer said, this is all well and good, but one day she, meaning me, will have to face up to the real responsibilities and get mature and write about the real uh, confrontation for black people, which is white people. As though our lives have no meaning and no depth without the white gaze. And I've spent my entire writing life trying to make sure that the white gaze was not the dominant one in any of my books. And the people who helped me most arrive at that kind of language, were African writers. Chenoa Achebe, Bessie Head. Those writers who could assume the centrality of their race because they were Africans. And they didn't explain anything to white people. Those questions were incomprehensible to them. Those questions that I would have as a minority living in an all-white country like the United States. But when I read um, the poetry of Cesar, or the poetry of Senghor, or the novels particularly, Things Fall Apart was more important to me than anything. Only because there was a language, there was a posture, there were the parameters. I could step in now, and I didn't have to be consumed by or be concerned by the white gaze. That was the liberation for me. It has nothing to do with who reads the books. Everyone of any race, any gender, any country. But my sovereignty and my authority as a racialized person had to be struck immediately with the very first book. And it was strange because in this country, many books, particularly then, uh, 40s, 50s, you could feel the address of the narrator over my shoulder, talking to somebody else, talking to somebody white. I could tell because they were explaining things that they didn't have to explain if they were talking to me.
was that? So this is a, it's profound for me. So that I may be, you may be right, maybe I'm over-dramatizing the whole question, which was innocent enough, because the problem of being free to write the way you wish to without this other racialized gaze is a serious one for an African-American writer. Don't you understand that the people who do this thing, who practice racism, right. are bereft? There is something distorted about the psyche. It's a huge waste and it's a corruption and a distortion. It's like it's a profound neurosis that nobody examines for what it is. It feels crazy. It is crazy. And it leaves, it has just as much of a deleterious effect on white people and possibly equal as it does black people. I always knew that I had the moral high ground all my life. I always thought those people who said I couldn't come in the drugstore and I had to sit in these funny places, I couldn't you go in the park. You superior to them I from did. day one. And I thought they knew that I knew that they were inferior to me morally. I always thought that. And my parents always thought that. You said your father was racist because he always felt like he was he always superior. Thought, that's right. He always felt superior. And that was a form, you know, of, of, defend, of defensive racism. But if, if the racist white person, I don't mean the person who is examining his consciousness and so on, doesn't understand that he or she is also a race, it's also constructed, it's also made, and it also has some kind of serviceability. But when you take it away, I take your race away, and there you are, all strung out, and all you got is your little self. And what, and what is that? What are you without racism? Are you any good? Are you still strong? Are you still smart? you still like yourself? I mean, these are the questions. It's, part of it is, yes, the victim, how terrible it has been for black yeah, people. Like that. I'm not a victim. I refuse to be one. And the victim is the other person who is morally inferior and that's who what, that's a has serious to hold on to of course. racism if you to have somehow to hold, that's for right. his or her own self-esteem and definition. If you can only be tall because somebody's on their knees, then you have a serious problem. And my feeling is white people have a very, very serious problem. And they should start thinking about what they can do about it. Take me out of it.